Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Uh, we're reading from Ruth 1. I'm reading the whole chapter. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Mahlon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and, their, and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come, in the, come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they went, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and I gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me, and the Almighty has, thought misfor- has brought misfortune on me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. I'll just pray for Steve before he talks. Um, dear Lord, thank you for the privilege, gather- the privilege of gathering together in peace, um, that we can be a family, that we can join and serve you, Lord. I pray for Steve's message, um, that, you, that you speak through him and that you provide uh, a look into your heart, into your desires for us as your believers, Lord. And I pray that you soften us to accept the message today. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to talk about um, faith and hope in hard times. Faith and hope in hard times. Uh, a few weeks ago, those who were with us on the weekend away, I started my, one of my sermons quoting from the Shawshank Redemption, and I'm going to unashamedly do the same today. Um, 
The film starts with unprecedented tragedy. Multiple tragedies, all focused on one man, Tim Robbins. First, he finds his wife is having an affair. That wasn't devastating enough. His wife is then murdered. To make matters worse, he's falsely accused of murder. And finally, he's charged to life in prison for a crime he never committed. You're 5, 10, 15 minutes into the film, and all you've seen is death, injustice, and the agonies of an innocent man adjusting to life in a hard prison. It is utterly devastating. And the question we're asking five minutes into the film is, how are this tragic set of events going to lead to anything good? How is good going to triumph over evil? How is sadness going to be turned to joy? But it's one of the greatest films of all time. And it does. Ruth chapter 1, you're five verses in. It's tragedy, tragedy, tragedy. All focused on one person, Naomi. First tragedy, famine in Israel. First one, there was famine in the land. Unless I'm mistaken, certainly in not recent history, none of us will have experienced famine. But don't forget, Ireland as a nation has been dramatically formed by famine, the potato famine, the great famine. Those of you that don't know the history, it happened 170 years ago in 1845, during which one million people died here in Ireland and another million migrated and the population of Ireland fell by 20 to 25% and has only just recovered 170 years later. Here is a picture of the scene uh, in Skibbereen, West Cork, from an artist at the time, James Mahoney, who lived the tragedy. And here is a modern remembrance that you may visit in the city centre of Dublin. The horrors of famine. Disease sets in, people grow weak, babies, old people and the already sick die quickly. Life becomes unbearable as you hunger and hunger with no sign of relief. Well, that happens in Israel. So Naomi and her husband Elimelech leave Bethlehem in Israel to go to Moab because there's food there. But that leads to the second tragedy of the story. Really, it's exile. As they head off in verse 1, you know, you're moving house. That's tough enough, isn't it? Pulling up roots, leaving neighbors and friends, uh, trying to find a new job, new neighborhood, new way of life. It's exhausting. The people of Ukraine, so many of them are currently facing this. I'm, I'm just so disorientating, and I've got to rebuild again in another land. Moving country just magnifies this. A new culture, new language, new laws, new customs. You're an outsider. Do I have any friends? How do I make friends? How long is it going to take to make friends? And what's worse, why I say exile, is because Moab were always the enemy, or one of the enemies to the Israelites. They were founded through Lot, Abraham's nephew's incestuous relationship with his eldest daughter who tricked him when he was drunk. It was a pretty awful story, and, and the Moabites became people that worshipped a god called Chemosh, and they sacrificed children to that god. It's probably the way of the author getting across this idea of exile. Sorry, the, the way the author gets across this idea of exile is the irony that Bethlehem means house of bread. They're going from the house of bread because there is no bread to a foreigner's place to find food. There's irony in it, and the author probably means to get across that maybe it was a lack of faith from Elimelech, not to stick it out and not to see God's provision, maybe. Well, it turns out to be a foolish decision of Elimelech's because death comes to them, verses 3 to 5. Firstly, Naomi's husband, Elimelech himself, dies. Ten years later, after they've lived in exile, Naomi's two sons, Malon and Kilion, also die. 
And the story, we're left with three characters, three widows. Naomi, who's old from Israel, and two young Moabite girls, Ruth and Orpah. It's ironic, kind of in a tragic way, that Elimelech had left the house of bread to find bread and avoid death and discovered death. Often the way, isn't it? You run in a time of crisis and you don't seek God and you try and control it for yourself and you think, I can fix this and you maybe don't avoid the thing you were trying to avoid because you were driven by fear. Maybe that's what happened to Elimelech. And just to make sure we sense the sense of hopelessness and despair, the book of authors. The book, the book of Ruth starts by telling us the context and the time. It's a time of godlessness and anarchy. Verse 1, the opening line, in the days when the judges ruled. Well, the problem is the judges didn't rule. If you've read the previous book of the Bible, you find a people that neither feared nor loved nor cared about the God of Israel, Yahweh. God was forgotten, and the, the refrain that runs through the, this book in the book of Judges is a refrain from modern day, you could say. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as he or she saw fit. You have famine, you have exile, you have death, and you have godlessness and anarchy. No fear of the Lord. People did whatever they wanted, and it became a breeding ground for every type of evil under the sun. You read the book of Judges, murder, rape, pillage, abusive power, lies, deceit, all told graphically. It's a period of civil unrest and violence, social disintegration, violence against women, assault, war, and ultimately Israel spirals out of control and society falls apart because everyone did what they wanted. That's the context of this magnificent story of Ruth, but it's a context of tragedy. You're five verses in, and the author is piling up one tragedy on another, on on Naomi's life. There should be a shock to us. It's so undeserved. It's so disproportionate. How can anything good come from such a terrible start? I find it moving. In the book of Ruth, the camera of all of history pans into one moment, to one location, and to three widows. An aged Israelite and two young Moabites, living in a world that seemed harsh and scary and unfair and against them. And interestingly, and people will write this every time a commentary is written on the book of Ruth, God is really, he's mentioned twice by the author, once in verse 6 and later in the book. It's as if God isn't active. Where is God? He's not the active agent we're used to when we read the books of the Bible. And so we learn in the book of Ruth that God is at work in the ordinary. Ordinary people facing ordinary events. It's about family and bereavement. Who doesn't face that? It's about food and unemployment. It's about the basics of finding and affording a home. Is there any more message we need in Dublin today? It's about vulnerability of singleness and the challenges of marriage. There's nothing spectacular or glamorous. There's no miracles. There's no angels. There's no mighty acts of God. It's all very ordinary and mundane. We long, don't we, in our lives, and when we read the, where's God acting? Where's he intervening? Where's our moment of miraculous transformation? And yet that's not how the book of Ruth goes. But for the careful reader, and may we be careful over these six weeks, we see the hand of God everywhere in the mundane 
and the ordinary. And may we learn as God's people to detect his hand. Matthew said the, the work of the Spirit every day in our lives. Naomi actually does detect the hand of the Lord. So let's consider how the story moves forward. Verses 6 to 13. Verse 6 tells us the famine is over. It's the one first reference of two to the, the, the author saying about the agency of God. He came to the aid of his people. So Naomi sets back and she has her two daughter-in-laws from Moab and she, she realizes something and they all realized it. Maybe it was an awkward thing for the three ladies to talk about. I mean, if we go back to Israel, what hope is there for us to, you know, Moabites? Because like, no one's going to want to marry us because like, we're not from Israel. And Naomi, like, you're getting on a bit and no one's going to want to marry you. And then she says it herself, doesn't she? Like, no one's, if you, you're not going to have a son for us to grow up and, and marry. So... She, she eventually says it to them, doesn't she? She says, Ruth and Orpah, you just head back to your country and rebuild a life with a new husband and a new home. Why? Because no one's going to marry you, potentially, because you're Moabites. And we know the history with Lot. It's pretty awkward. And secondly, I'm old, and I won't be able to provide any more sons for you. Now, to modern ears, where we celebrate the equality of women in society and how a woman's worth is not tied solely to her husband... We may bristle inside at such thoughts that Naomi had then. But if that's you, consider two things. Firstly, you're forgetting this is 21st century Ireland. This was 3,000 years ago in the 12th century BC in Israel. And the status of a woman was tied and her, and her security was tied to having A, a husband, and be given birth to a son who would provide for her as she got old. To be a widow was to be lonely and helpless. That is why widows are put alongside in the Old Testament, how God wants to care for the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. They're put in together because they're so vulnerable in society. So these three women, the prospect of the future not not, does not look good in that culture. But secondly, what is one of the main sorrows and pains in the lives of many young men and women today? Well, it's that they can't find a good life partner with shared values and the same God that they can settle down with. We're 3,000 years later, but our concerns are Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah's concerns. I've spoken to many girls and men, but many girls particularly, who said, Steve, why aren't there more good men that I can marry? Christian girls can often feel like the pool of Christian men is so small and they therefore have to go and look for them that don't worship the same God like we find here in this story. And it can come a snare to them. The situation of Ruth and Orpah isn't far removed from our own. Maybe we should sit more humbly and think, well, what lessons can we learn then with the challenges of singleness and the vulnerability and insecurity that it can create and how together we can think that through. As I said a moment ago, Ruth, in the book of Ruth, God is very much there but it's often ordinary, it's often mundane, it's often in the harder things of life. Maybe you fear that you won't have a life partner, or may Ruth particularly, and Naomi, inspire you how God can protect and provide for you in singleness. Anyway, let's move on. It's not surprising that Naomi urges the two girls to head back to Moab, verses 14 to 18, better chance of finding a man and rebuilding the future. To find rest, 
But then there's a major surprise, a turn in the narrative that no one expects. Ruth says this, but Ruth replied, Orpah goes back, but Ruth says, don't urge me to leave you and turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When, God, when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. We have one of the great statements in the scriptures of faithful love from one to another. Determination, loyalty. The, 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 the Hebrew idea of hesed, it's this covenant love that commits to other people. She commits to her, to her travel, to her home, to her faith, to, to Naomi's travel home and faith. This is a promise of committed faithfulness for life. There's so much we can learn from Ruth, and we will do, about risk-taking within the covenant uh, promises of God and loyalty that our modern culture lacks. We want to keep our options open. Ruth can inspire us to commit in love to people. For now, we must note that this this statement of commitment from Ruth to Naomi is going to set the course of her life and her future children and the future of the world history on a radical course. She will become the great-grandfather Great, 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 to David and Jesus. But we'll come back to that in chapter 4. So chapter 1 ends, verses 19 to 21, with Orpah heading back, Ruth joining Naomi, and the two ladies walking back into Bethlehem, the house of bread. Now the women, what do they meet? They meet gossiping women. They haven't seen Naomi for 10 years. Where's Elimelech? Where are Malon and Kilion? Who's this strange Moabite. Like, you can imagine the gossip as they... And, and suffering does something to your face, doesn't it? Naomi probably just looks not only 10 years older, but maybe 30 years older. Her husband has died. Her two sons have died, and nothing has gone. Who is this? That's the question they ask. Can this be Naomi? How does Naomi answer the question, verse 20? with a name change. Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. I went home, I left full and I've come back empty. I left pleasant and I've come back bitter. Life has been tough. The Almighty, she says, El Shaddai, the the name of the creator God that Abraham used, has done this. He's afflicted me and brought tragedy on me. And verse 22, the final verse, says, Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Notice the last six words. As the barley harvest was beginning. There's a glimmer of hope in the house of bread that God might be coming to 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 their aid. Famine has ended. Maybe... Naomi's emptiness will become full. Maybe her unpleasantness, uh, her bitterness will become pleasant. Maybe the exile will be a homecoming. Maybe the death will be new life. The author wants to draw our attention to maybe the Almighty's doing something that's going to change the course of the story. We have a glimmer of hope. And if you want to know what happens, come back next week. Every chapter of Ruth, apart from chapter 4, ends on a cliffhanger. So there you go. It's a masterful book. So what are we going to learn? That's the story. What are we going to learn? I want us to reflect on Naomi, who's getting old in age. 
and she has no sons, and we've talked about how scary that would have been with her. And you can imagine Naomi asking this question, what hope is there for the future, given the tragedy of my past or given the vulnerability of my present? And that's the same question probably Ruth's asking, what hope is there for the future, given the tragedy of my past and the vulnerability of my present? And that's a question I guess we all face at some point. No one goes through life without hard times. No one goes through life without tragedy and upset and dashed hopes and or just moments when you go, I just feel very vulnerable. Maybe you feel fragile and frail in Dublin. It can just be a big, scary city to get your head around. Maybe it's the same as Ruth and Naomi. I can't afford to live in Dublin and I'm scared of the money side of things and how expensive this city is. And That was their issue. Maybe you've had a death of a family member or close friend and... Maybe it was a while ago, but it, it's still, you never quite recovered. You never found the healing and the peace in God about the passing and the loss and the hole that that left. Maybe it's singleness, as I shared earlier, that the small pool seems to be available to you and you'd love a life partner and you don't want to make it everything, but maybe it's your sexuality that you didn't choose. It's just how you feel and... and your affections, and it leaves you vulnerable. Like, what does the future mean for me then? And if I commit to Christ, what does... Vulnerability. Maybe you lack good friends, or the friends you did have have sort of drifted, or financial uncertainty with job uncertainty and, and, and unemployment. Or maybe it's long COVID, and I mean that not just with the physical ailment of long COVID. There might be that, but just a sense of, I never got out of the rut that COVID put me in. I never was able to re-energize myself and seeing people and, and reconnecting with normal life, just exhausting. And I, I, I just feel vulnerable in this new world post-COVID and lots of things have changed. Well, Ruth chapter one says the barley harvest is beginning. There's a glimmer of hope. There is a rest and a home and a future for these women as we will see. So how do we handle these vulnerable moments as we look to the future? How do we handle the challenges? And how do we not... Just run off from Dublin to Moab, where we get a cheaper house, and then just go, oh, just run off and do the easy thing. And that's fine, maybe that's for some, but not if you haven't thought through God, what God wants. But we need to learn to pray like Naomi prays. Naomi says, The Lord Almighty has afflicted her, made her bitter. And although on first reading you think they are statements of unbelief, they are amazing statements. Of faith. Let me read again. It is more bitter for me than for you, she says to the girls, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Don't call me Naomi, she told them, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Which means pleasant. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. There's an apparent sense that these seem like statements of unbelief, but they're not. They're statements of faith. They, there's an apparent look that this is a statement of despair, but it's not. It's a statement of hope. It looks like a desertion from God, but it's actually a commitment to God. You go, why? Well, think of the three alternatives she has. Firstly, Naomi could have pretended, well, I haven't gone through that bad of suffering. It wasn't that bad. After all, you know, it's just a, everyone has their challenges and just become numb. Just sort of go, I didn't really suffer. I'm pushing under the carpet. But that, that wouldn't be good, and that would lead you nowhere in suffering because there's, there's pain that needs to be dealt with. So option one that she avoided was just to sort of ignore it and become numb. Option two was to turn her back on God altogether, and what would that have meant? Stop talking to and about God. 
And that would have led to worse things, just ignoring God and just not talking about him. But she's actually talking about him and to him. So she's actually communicating, even if it isn't anger. The relationship is still there. So she doesn't pretend it didn't happen. She doesn't stop talking to and about God. And thirdly, the other thing she could have done, which she doesn't do, is say, well, it was all outside of God's control. God wasn't involved and connected with all the tragedy of the famine and the deaths, and he somehow didn't have his hand and plan over and under all of that. Because she calls him the Almighty, and she she actually says, he has done this. Because if God is not there, involved, and somehow in control over all our suffering, we have no hope of victory over it. He's a helpless God like we're helpless victims in suffering. That's not Naomi's view. Naomi reflects an earlier theology from the book of Job. We learn in that book that the devil uh, was allowed to inflict Job uh, with all kinds of, of suffering from, uh, the, under the providence of God, Almighty God, El Shaddai. And all these things happened in Naomi's life, like it happened to Job's life, because of the permission of God and uh, that, he, that he had enabled that to, to, to happen or, or had been willing for that to happen. We have a problem with my screen. Yeah. There we go. Hopefully that'll sort it. Um, so here Naomi affirms what the book of Job teaches, which is this, God does allow terrible things to happen in this world, but he has a greater plan, and his hand is always there, even in the tragedies of life. As I said, if God is not in control, he's only a God like we are who's reacting to the affairs of human history, not in charge of them, not leading them to a course where they can have a wonderful fulfillment. He's as helpless as a victim as we are. What kind of God do you want to pray to? A God that's not in control? Why pray to him? He can't do anything. We lose comfort in our suffering if he's not in control. We lose purpose in our suffering if he's not in control. We lose hope, most importantly. The Bible gives no encouragement to the idea that God is anything but all-powerful. And Naomi knows that and continues to say that to God in her suffering. It's a belief that she still holds on, that he's more powerful than what's happened to her. She knows that nothing in the universe happens without his permission. So Naomi neither pretends the suffering isn't suffering, which would make her emotionally numb, turns her back on God, which would lead her nowhere, and tries to excuse God from responsibility, which means he is as much a helpless victim as she is. These are radical statements of faith that he's still the almighty God. But she complains to him, and so does Job, and so should we, when life is hard. Now, growing up, I'd always thought that Naomi was a bitter old woman who turned her back on God, but she's not. She's a wonderful woman of faith who we need to learn to lament and and, and emulate in how she engages with God. And I tell you why she's not bitter. Verses 8 to 10. In verse 8 to 10, she says to her daughters, you know, you go back and find husbands, and there's all this crying and weeping as they part, you know. Well, firstly, tears and emotion. She obviously loved her daughters, and her daughters loved her. This is not a bitter old woman who's not able to make relationships. Secondly, notice she talks about the Lord's kindness. It's that Hebrew word hesed in verses 8 to 10. This faithful, loyal, steadfast love. She holds all her bitter experiences within the the setting of God's covenant promises to Israel. So she reminds herself and her daughters of God's covenant name, Yahweh. He is still the God that is in relationship with his people. So she cries, she reminds herself of God's unfailing love and his name. And thirdly and most significantly, look at what she prays for there in verse 
9. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. In the middle of all her pain, in all her heartache, in all her grief, she prays the thing that she most wants and doesn't have. It's a bit like a single girl who wants a husband, praying for her best friend to get a husband, and then rejoicing when that happens for the other person, even if it doesn't happen for her. Not being bitter or jealous. It's a bit like an unemployed guy who's praying for a job and then he finds out his friend has got a job. And he's the first to send the congratulations card with no bitterness. It's a bit like a renter in Dublin who feels like they're putting the majority of their income down the drain, celebrating that someone else has been able to get a mortgage or buy a flat. Do you see? You have to be so tender-hearted to pray for someone else and bless them for the very thing that you want and you don't have. What amazing faith Naomi has. What love she has. So how can we emulate Naomi? Maybe we can't. Maybe in the face of such vulnerability and tragedy, we wouldn't hold on to God being almighty and we would struggle to pray for those like she does. Maybe we can't emulate Naomi, but it does, she does point forward to another, doesn't she? Who came from the house of bread. And he would die in a place of despair. He'd suffer undeservedly and disproportionately, rejected by all, scorned. He'd grieve with God in Gethsemane. My God, my God. Well, he does that on the cross, but he prays if there's any way for me to avoid this suffering. But the Almighty had his hand at work in the suffering. And he'd lose his father's fullness and experience a cosmic emptiness, despair, and vulnerability called hell, where there is no hope and light. And he would do that so we would never have to experience that level of suffering, emptiness, and despair. He said, I want to make you safe. He wanted to commit to us as Ruth had committed to Naomi fully, forever, to make us eternally secure. And if you know Jesus as both the almighty God who's in charge of all and the great loving one who would give his life for you, you can handle any vulnerability and tragedy because he'll make you feel safe and secure. The illustration has been used many times, but it's a good one. Our life is like a tapestry. And when you look at the back of the tapestry, all you see is tangled threads pointing to life's experiences. In a fallen world, they seem tangled. There's unrelated colors. It's loose ends. It's unraveled knots. The back of a tapestry looks like a mess. The human side of history. You flip the tapestry over and you see God's side of history. And all those meaningless and out-of-joint threads come together to make a beautiful tapestry that spells God is love and God is for you. Maybe on the human story of pain, God is writing another story that we can't see yet, that they couldn't see. That's the part of life. That's the life of faith and the faith that Naomi shows. God is still working. He's still loving. He's still kind. He's still faithful. And even the pains that I'm experiencing now, I trust that one day, He will fill me where I feel empty. Naomi speaks to each of us about what it is to hold on to God. 
in suffering and hard times, to be honest with God, to grieve over your sorrow, but ultimately to stay hold of God so you can rebuild for a better future. So we need to learn to see God's hand behind all of events, all of the ordinary moments and all of the painful moments. Then we will remain hopeful and we'll see that a barley harvest is around the corner where the sorrow will turn to joy in this world or in the world to come. Can I invite the band back? We're going to just spend a moment in quiet and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper and I think we might sing first. Let's stay seated for now. Just take a moment to consider where you feel vulnerable, where you feel nervous and fearful of the future, where the Ruth chapter 1 has spoken to your heart. Father, we thank you for this beautiful story in a time of chaos in which it was written. We thank you for these two amazing women, Ruth and Naomi, and how they can inspire us. We thank you that your eye was on them. They were just an aged widow and a foreign widow in a scary world 3,000 years ago, and yet you had your eye on them and you had your hand on them. And May we learn that you are the God at work in all the ordinary, and you're there with us, and you're even in charge and enabling all our challenging moments to be used for your glory. I pray for my brothers and sisters here and for all of us that know something of the vulnerability those two women faced back then, that we would know just your kindness and your strength in our weakness. And teach us what it is to pray like Naomi prays, affirming who you are and doing business with you in the tough times. And so, Lord, where we need hope again, where we need to hold on to you again, would you use this chapter and by your spirit enable us to do that and follow in their footsteps. And we thank you for Jesus, the one who took the path path of ultimate vulnerability to give us security. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's sing.